Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. First of all, I want to I want to welcome everyone who's uh, who's tuned in, and, and of course Ben, thanks for uh, taking the time. Uh, Ben's joining us from the UK, and uh, can be a bit of a juggling act trying to get our time zones all lined up, um, but we uh, we manage at this time. And Ben's been something I wanted to someone I've wanted to have on the show and chat with for some time. Um, so thanks for joining us, Ben. Oh, absolute pleasure to come on. Um, yeah, I love the the show already. I've tuned in for quite a few of them. So yeah, it's uh, good to be on it finally. Hey, so Ben, tell us um, first and foremost um, a little bit about yourself and, and your, uh, you know, what, what sort of things uh, are you into or were you into before you had your accident? Yeah, so my sort of life has nearly always been revolved about around swimming. And um, so ever since I was a little kid, um, I really wanted to be a swimmer. And there was a certain moment in my young, my, uh, young life, as many young people have, which was watching the Olympics and specifically watching Ian Thorpe swim and seeing how well he did it and like with so much little effort and he's such a graceful swimmer. And I was like, I want to do that. And that was in, well, 2000 at the Sydney Olympics uh, when I was about nine years old. So that, at that point, I was just like, okay, I want to make a proper go for Like I want to make this my thing. It wasn't just, I like swimming. Um, so yeah, it was like, I want to do this properly. I want to make that my thing. So yeah, when kids are growing up, and they say they want to be a national or whatever. I was like, I want to be an Olympic swimmer and do what he's doing. So, um, yeah, I and luckily, I happened to be quite tall, and I got fairly big feet, so I was naturally <laughs> gifted for the sport. <laughs> and also, um, I was just quite good at just whatever I seemed to apply myself in terms of sport. So uh, from a young age, just getting involved, um, yeah, I was naturally quite talented at it. Um, I managed to do quite well at my local club, and I got um, an offer from a boarding school in the UK uh, that specialised in swimming. And they've had many great um, UK um, uh, Olympians over the years. And, yeah, I got the chance to go there and really see if I can make something of it. Um, within my first year, uh, I got my first national time, went to the nationals. I went in ranked 56th with my time, and I ended up coming sixth in the same competition with a four second personal best. And, uh, yeah, then I was, then my coach was like, Oh, you're pretty good. <laughs> let's, let's like push this forwards and keep going. And it just snowballed over the years. Really. I managed to, uh, get a national gold medal. Um, and I was really doing well with my life, really progressing forwards, getting on, uh, national teams as a junior and then getting the opportunity as well to head out to Australia to train with some of the best people in the world and one of the best coaches as well. And that was in, that was on the Gold Coast in Australia. So I was out there living an amazing life, you know, being 18, 19 years old, living uh -huh. in Australia on the other side of the world, all the sun and yeah, just eat, swim, sleep, repeat all day long. And yeah, it was, it was the life I wanted to live and it was amazing. And then, yeah, I was that, doing that for 10 months and then I came home and the idea of coming home is I was going to go to my niece's christening and then compete at the nationals. And this was two years before the Olympics in 2012. So I really wanted to make my statement on the national scene 
try and get a senior gold medal or a senior medal at some in one of the races to get on the program so I could be put forward for 2012. And that was my goal and my ambition. Came home, had my niece's christening. Um, it was all going well. Again, just living my best life and just sort of doing all my swimming, getting back in this country with my old coaches. And then I was down on the beach one day with a friend, just on a relaxing off day. Um, ran into the sea, thought I was on Baywatch, doing the whole, the whole slope. No, not even slope. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then dove into the water um, and it was shallower than I expected. Um, the sand at the bottom was sort of like this. I was in a deep part, dove in, thought it was the same depth as I was, but it happened to be just really shallow. And the wave just came at the wrong time where the water was even shallower. And I hit my head and, yeah, I broke my neck at C7 in the end. Um, so at that time, I was lying down in the water um, and not really knowing what had happened. Couldn't move my body at all, just lying down. And I just felt at the time... I just needed to be calm. When I was in Australia, I did a little bit of lifeguarding to pay my way. And I knew that what the training was to deal with a spinal cord injury, but I didn't really know what a spinal cord injury was. Didn't really know the ramifications of it. I just know I had to keep still and just uh, pray that the lifeguards would come and get me. So yeah, I was laid down there and then sort of blackening that consciousness, trying to hold my breath um, and just trying to stay alive and just calm in that moment. Uh, the next thing I knew, I was on the beach just a small flash and I saw people standing over me, then another flash and I was in the back of an ambulance um, with the ambulance guy saying he's going to have to cut my shorts off um, and that I paralyzed myself. And then the next flash I was in hospital. Um, my mum's there crying. And then next flash was like a couple of days later. And yeah, it's all a bit of a blur still from back then, but yeah, I was dipping in and out of consciousness, took a lot of water on. Um, so yeah, then I was in hospital and, yeah, my life had changed in an instant, basically. Yeah, man, that's a that's a heavy story. I've I've heard the same scenario a few times, where you know, just yeah, diving into the to the waves, and uh, it's it's interesting. What I learned while I was living in Australia was that there's these, I guess they call them gutters, where and you'd learn this in lifesaving, where there's you know these currents that form these deeper parts at the often at the start of the, the surf line and then the sand comes up in a, in, a, in a bar if you like and I guess that's what surfers like yeah. to surf on and they're not always that obvious and um, you know obviously and um, you know there's such a shock a shock to the to this you know it's just such a it's actually such a hazard but it's like a it's not an obvious hazard like you you wouldn't jump off a roof or you wouldn't, you know, you'd be careful around a balcony. It's just, it's water. You think, I'm just going to dive in. It's yeah, it's something that everybody does. Everybody runs into the sea and dives into the waves. And it yeah. just happened that I was a bit too good at diving. Um, and, yeah, it was a bit too shallow. And, yeah, it's you can't tell. Like, it was, there's nothing I could have done really to change the situation apart from not doing it. But mm. I wasn't to know that that was the situation that was happening. So tell us, what was your preconceived notion of, of um, a spinal cord injury or uh, someone that a, it breaks their neck? What, what did you, what, what preconceived ideas did you have around that before your accident? So when, um, so before it, all I really knew is my lifeguard training, which was if there's a suspected spinal cord injury, when someone dives into shallow water, the moves you have to do to make sure they're okay before the paramedics get there. 
And that's all my knowledge was of it. I didn't really understand mm. what that meant, didn't really understand all that. The only thing I knew about breaking your neck was in the movies when you get people doing the nats- <laughs> neck snap sort of thing. But you, you don't, in the movies, they die. So you don't really, <laughs> yeah, mm. that's about all I knew in terms of uh, spinal cord injury as such. Um, so when it happened, I was like, I'm probably going to be okay. I'll, you know, a couple of weeks' time, I'll be back to training and I'll be back to normal. It's just a bit of a setback. I've had an injury. I had an injury the same time the year before where I got hit by a car. Um, and I just sort of had a bit of an achy arm for a bit and I got back to normal. I thought, yeah, it's a little bit more serious than that, but I'll be back to normal. I'll be back training again. <laughs> when, when did you realize that wasn't going to be the case? And, and what was going through your mind at that time? I thought it was going to be okay because my mum was in hospital and she was, I think she had been told by the doctors that I'd never walk in, but they never really explicitly said that to me. Um, but there was about, I had a major operation to fix the spine with the, with um, the metal. And just before that, a nurse came from the actual spinal unit. They came, they do like an outreach program to make sure that you understand the situation and what's going to happen over the next like month, year, whatever. And she came out and explained sort of the seriousness of the situation, what's going to happen, what's going to be doing, and like the reality of it. And that's when I saw it actually dawned on me. I was like, oh, this is more than just a broken bone. This is a life-changing experience. And then, yeah, I had the operation, and it took like 12 hours operation. At that time, I had to have bolts put in my head and my neck extended with some weights on so they could operate on the area, and I was on... God knows how much morphine because I thought that polar bears were coming through the ceiling and my hand was a turkey. So, yeah, it a, it, <laughs> seriously, straight up. Yeah, yeah. So you know the um, fire extinguish, like fire extinguishers on the ceiling. I thought those were, they were white with a black dot, and I thought I was a polar bear's nose, and it was coming through the ceiling. And then, wow. Initially, once I hit, uh, broke the net, everything down was paralyzed. And when my hand started moving, I wasn't really aware that it was my hand, and I thought it was a turkey because it was the, the position it was in. So I thought it was a turkey for a smile. <laughs> <laughs> I, had a, I had an opposite experience. I didn't, didn't imagine interesting or fun fun things like that. I, I, I thought of you know there was demons and there's all sorts of really nasty stuff when I was um, on my drug induced high. But anyway, <laughs> turkeys and polar bears sound okay to me, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it was, it was more funny, and my my family it, luckily that helps them a little bit because they saw that like I was sort of joking around with it with, and you know I didn't know what was going on, but I, it, it definitely lightened up their mood for even if it was for just five minutes. <laughs> oh, mate! So you've had you know had the surgery, and you'd sort of realised the situation. Um, did you shift into some state of optimism or did what, what sort of state of mind did you enter in after that? Yeah. So because I was so focused on the Olympics and that was, you know, in two years time, that's what I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, that's fine. If I'm going to be in a wheelchair now, I'll just go for the Paralympics and I'll just, just carry on training for that. So I was like, okay, when can I get in the pool? When can I start training again? That's all I really cared about. So it was more like I have a purpose and I want to get to this destination and this isn't going to stop me. I just have to change my, you know, change the route slightly. But it's still getting to the goal. It's still the same thing to me. It's, so that was my driving factor right the way through my rehab. And I remember when I was in hospital, because I had to lay on my back for eight weeks and not move. Um, so it was four weeks in my local hospital and then four weeks in, my, uh, in the rehab hospital. 
And while I was there, I heard someone say there was a rehab pool available, like a hydrotherapy pool. And I was like, as soon as I heard that, every single moment there was somebody near me that I could see. I was like, when can I get in the pool? When can I get in the pool? When can I get in the pool? And they were like, well, you can't do yet. You have to stay laying down. And it normally takes like 12 weeks for you to be able to start seeing up comfortably. And I was like, no, I need to get back in the pool. So I only learned a couple of years later for a friend um, at a hospital, but uh, they had a meeting about me and they said that I think it's really important that he gets back in the pool. Probably just <laughs> just, just to, so I stop annoying them probably more than anything. But they were like, yeah, they think it would be best for my mental well-being that I'm back in the pool training. So they sort of accelerated the process a little bit and got me back in, which was an amazing yet weird experience getting back in the pool because normally – I was training like 10 times a week for about two and a half hours of time. Um, and I just run into the pool on a freezing cold morning and it's all cold and you, you shiver, but then you get going and you're fine. But this, it was going down to the pool in a wheelchair, being helped transferred via a sling into a, sh- into a, a pool hoist, then getting in. And then when my feet hit the water, I was just expecting that cold feeling that I always got. But because I had no sensation, it was nothing. Mm-hmm. It was super weird because I hadn't had like a shower or a bath or anything at that point. So I hadn't really felt water on me. And it was weird because it touched and I was like, oh, of course, there's no feeling here. That's bizarre. Mm-hmm. And then as it came up and it got to sort of where I started to feel, I could feel it sort of coming over my skin. And it felt like silk bed sheets almost like coming over me. And I was like, ah, that's the feeling I remember. And it was quite a nice warm pool. So it wasn't quite the cold <laughs> feeling. But yeah, it's a nice warm pool. And got in and they were like, they had to put floats all over me to make sure I was okay. And I was like, going along and I was like, I don't need this float. And I just started taking off myself. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't need it. I'm fine. And then just started swimming and I started swimming and they were like, oh, that's quite good. And I was actually doing more movement than they actually realized I had at the time. So I was able to have forearm movement and yeah, it was a really powerful moment in my rehab. And I was, I was so grateful that it was so early on because it was such a catalyst to, motivate me to carry on and through that whole process so from that day on I was like we only had access to the pool once a week but they allowed me down twice a week um and also by getting in the gym there and just putting all the effort in to making sure that I was doing all the stuff that I needed to to be as independent as possible when I left so yeah it was it's pretty awesome I remember my first swim in the pool a similar pool and my thing was surfing and and uh and I managed to convince them to put a kayak in the pool and let me have a go at getting on the kayak. And and I think it was a bit of a stretch for the team there. You know, they'd never had anybody that wanted to get into a kayak, you know, so soon after their injury. And um, But, you know, there was one physio there who really, you know, um, Brendan Verco is his name, and he... He um he understood he understood the place where I was at and uh, and made it happen and so I was really thankful for for that opportunity and you know the staff that were able to um, really take note and give me a personalised um, plan if you like and personalise my rehab. Um, I mean I felt like swimming I was swimming uphill because my legs were they were you know they would sink you know and um, and you know I guess. Pretty quickly on, we realised we needed to, you know, put some sort of floating um, mechanism on my legs so that they weren't, you know, well, first they weren't scraping along the bottom and getting all bloody and and torn up, but um, but also to make swimming swimming easier because I could no longer kick. Um, I remember being really exhausted. Did you did you find that it was really taxing on on my yeah. uh, my body? Yeah, definitely. 
It's even though I was so used to just swimming lots and lots and lots. Of, yeah, like ten minutes in, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm exhausted." <laughs> so, what advice would you have for somebody who may be just new into the spinal unit right now? Um, I always think that the spinal unit is an amazing place to be. Like, there's so much opportunity there to learn, and my advice is always to people just learn as much as you can. Like you're never going to get the opportunity to have this much support that work around you because when you come out of hospital, like it's not necessarily there. So learn from the people, especially the people that have been, had their injuries and they come in and they do the peer support stuff. Learn from those people. Use as much as the facilities as you can and just do uh, as much as you can. First of all, it'll give you something to do every day and it will let you not think about what's happened as much and it will make you focus on something that's a lot more positive, which is progression. And just try and be consistent. You know, you're going to have days that you're not want to go do something. That's fine. Just have a day off and just get back it tomorrow. But yeah, just make the most of the time you've got, whether that's only a couple of weeks or months or even years. It doesn't matter what it is. Just yeah, um, really utilize what you got because it's an amazing opportunity to talk to nurses that have been experienced with other spinal patients. Good opportunity to meet new friends that have also gone through the same thing as you. You can talk about the things quite openly. I'm made, I've made friends for life because of being open and honest and having a chat with these people. And I still talk to them now regularly. And I know that's the same for quite a lot of other people that have been through this. Um, physios, the experts in the field, doctors, you can just learn so much. So use it as an opportunity to grow and progress forwards, really. Yeah, good advice for sure. I wasn't always open to talking to my peer supporters. Uh, I I struggled with uh, identifying with other wheelchair users I just wasn't I wasn't ready for that and I think that's okay um, but I cert- certainly learnt um, once I came out of rehab I uh, I found that there was a, a real vacant space where I no longer had the support there and that was when I reached out to well actually some uh, some of my peers reached out to me um, a guy by the name of Quentin Smith who I've had on the show here he would he would just ring me up or email me or text me and just say, hey, Mike, how's it, how's it going? And I, I may have been a bit short with him or a bit rude at first, um, but then I started to realise that he, he had heaps of knowledge and he, could, he really could fast track um, my recovery. And, uh, and so, yeah, he, he became a, a key, key person really, especially when it came to outdoor activities. You know, he'd, he was, uh, he'd learned to sail and he'd been paragliding, paragliding again and skiing and all of these things that I used to love doing. He he'd already sort of figured out how to do them, so I could tap into his knowledge and um, and fast track that. So, yeah, certainly awesome. What um what was one of the hardest things you had to overcome during your time in the spinal unit? Um, I'm I think it was just sort of looking back. There wasn't necessarily a time that was particularly difficult. I would have thought because I had such a strong mind focused on getting. To, back into swimming that pushed me forward so so much forwards mentally and physically so I don't remember anything like like big that was hard it was just little things like learning new little skills that I might get a little bit frustrated with but then in time I'd get to learn them I remember trying to open a chocolate bar for the first time it took me about an hour and a half for trying to do it and then trying to figure it out and yeah I was just like no once I have it this is going to be the best chocolate bar ever and it was because I did eventually get into it. And it was just um, learning it. And then the second time, because I learned how to do it, the second time it only took me five minutes. And then 
it doesn't take me any time at all now. So just little things to begin with that I was frustrated with. And yeah, um, I'm quite a laid back person anyway. So I know for some people it can be quite difficult to have to rely on other people, but I'm like, okay, it is what it is sort of thing. You know, that's just what I have to go through now. And I think I'm quite lucky in that sort of sense with my attitude. And also with having the swimming over the years, it's taught me a lot of stuff to deal with failure, you know, training really hard, get into a competition and not doing as well as you want to. So you go back and you try harder again, you get back, you get better Mm -hmm. and better over time. And that knowledge that I gained from the years of not succeeding and then eventually succeeding eventually got to the point where I could transfer those knowledge, that knowledge and that skill into my actual rehab and yeah, be better for it. It's amazing going into an injury like this with the, you know exactly the, that experience and skill that you had it does I believe it makes it uh, you know a lot easier and we we talked about it on your show um, a couple of days ago now having previous experiences with um, failure and with uh, you know tough situations can actually prepare you for something like this um, you're actually a lot stronger than you realize you know I think people yeah. People, um, they, they often say, oh, man, I don't know how you do it, Mike, and, you know, this I, I could never do this and, you know, all these sort of things. And I say, well, you know, actually human spirit's made up of um, a lot more than a lot of people realise and until they're faced with a situation like this, you know. Yeah, I think humans are extremely – it's like built into our DNA to be resilient. You know, we're super adaptable creatures and I don't think we realise how good we are at adapting to certain situations until we're forced to be put into them. We like to sit in our comfort zones. There's a few people like yourself who likes to push their comfort zones before injury even, um, you know, doing extreme things. And, you know, I think it's, we sort of thrive in those areas. And that's why there's so many people that love to push themselves. And so I think it's only when you do it that you realize what, how good it is and what you can learn from it. And you know, I think humans are better when they're at the edge of their limits. Mm. Tell us, uh, Ben, what sort of uh, lasting physical effects uh, you know, do you have from your injury? Yeah, so I broke my neck at CD7, which is, I've come to realise over the last sort of 10 years, it's quite a rare level as such. Um, it tends to be quite a lot of C4, C5 if you're a quadriplegic or higher. Um, and if you're a paraplegic, obviously it's, it's the usual sort of D5 to sort of T10 area or but yeah, depending on how you how react to it. But yeah, C7 seems to be quite rare. So a lot of people see me and don't really realize that I'm a quadriplegic because I have a lot of function in my upper body. Um, so I don't have any movement or feeling below my uh, chest. So halfway across my chest down, completely paralyzed. I've got a little bit of tingles and that in my feet occasionally. Like I can tell if someone's touching it, but I don't know what they're doing. It could be stabbing it with a knife or giving me a nice little tickle. So <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> um, and then, so above that, I got um, it, so a gradual fade of like feeling um, that my chest functions more on one side than the other. Same with my um, tricep as well. My left tricep is slightly better than my right tricep, but they're pretty, if you saw me, you wouldn't realize that my tricep has been affected at all. Um, so that's normally something that's affected by quads. Um, but yeah, I have no sensation, but I have movement in my triceps. I've got good wrist flexion extension, which is quite rare as well for a quad. Um, but my fingers are pretty normal for a quad. I can extend some of them, but I can't, 
uh, flexing with I just relaxed the flexing so yeah that's sort of my ability levels um, in terms of feeling and movement on top of that there's things like bowel and bladder like anybody with a spinal cord injury um, paralyzed bowel paralyzed bladder um, and having to deal with that uh, using different things that I use pyristine system for my bowels which is a water irrigation system basically you pump water in your bum and then everything comes out um, and then for my bladder, I've got, well, I've had a few solutions over the years. Initially, I had an indwelling catheter through my stomach, superpubic, and then I've now gone on to a mitrofenoff, which is similar to superpubic, but you can use a intermittent catheter. So I'd have to have a catheter in me the whole time now, put the catheter in my stomach, wee out into the toilet, and then pack it all away, and all done. Um, so yeah, that. And then there's a few other things that do come along with it as well. My height my level of injury, things like adrenaline. It's really difficult to build up adrenaline for me. So getting excited and getting fit, you know, I have to really motivate myself and really push something that, you know, adrenaline would normally kick in and help you out there. But because mm. that's depleted, because of the, yeah, it's something that wow. it's not really talked about too much. So, yeah. Um, and then and then the other thing is there's something called autonomic dysreflexia, which only affects, I think, very high powers in quads. Uh, basically anything that's happening below your level of injury like painful or inconvenient like if you've got a full bladder or bowels or you've got an ingrown toenail um it's sends a signal to you you're trying to send a signal up but it's going back and forth back and forth doesn't know what to do so your blood pressure just keeps rising and rising and rising until it's solved um so yeah i have to be really careful with that kind of stuff um because say i've got a really full bladder i don't i can't feel it my blood pressure starts to rise i get blotchy I'll get sweaty, I'll get headachey. One of the side effects is uh, impending sense of doom, which is just as bad as it sounds. You feel like you're going to die, um, which is not the nicest side effect. And then, um, yeah. And then with that, um, you either have to sort out the problem or take some medication until you can solve out the problem. Otherwise, it's just going to keep rising until, yeah, you have a stroke. And that's so, yeah, it can be pretty scary. Luckily, that doesn't happen. It sounds scary, but that's not a day to day problem. That's a, if something happens, that's what's mm. going to happen problem. So, yeah. I hear a lot of people in, in New Zealand anyway, the, the doctors don't tend to understand that. The, the mainstream physicians don't really, yeah. don't really understand what's happening. And so, if, if a person calls up or goes to accident emergency and says, I've got autonomic dysreflexia, sometimes people don't know what to do about that. Um, which makes it even more dangerous, I suppose. Um, yeah, I've had a few occasions. One specifically, I went into hospital and I had a, so I've got a, a card that says exactly what it is, and so they can type into their computers or whatever. But then the people I had, they didn't understand that, and I was like, I just need my bladder emptied. It was I had a block catheter, and I was like, I need my bladder emptied. You just need to drain it or replace it. And they didn't really understand what was going on, and they thought because my I had a high temperature. And I was going blotchy. They thought I had a fever. So they just, they just started taking blood tests. So I know I just need my bladder emptied and I'll be fine. Like, I can't do it at home. You need to do it for me. And they were like, no, no, it's okay. We know what we're doing. Like, and then eventually it came to my friend, who's the nurse in the hospital, because I was like, I just called her up and was like, can you come down? Because she knew about it. So she came down from her ward and fixed it all up. And then, yeah, I was out within an hour. So. <laughs> yeah, man. The things you've got to navigate, eh? Um, and I, I suppose the, the lesson there is if you have the knowledge and you understand, that's 
you know, that's really important because you, you can't always guarantee that another person will, you know, especially if you're traveling in another country or there's language barriers mm. or, you know, you've really got to take control of uh, understanding your own situation. Um, yeah. And most often the, you know, you get these things sort of drilled into you at uh, rehab, you know, around pressure injury prevention and, and autonomic dysreflection, things like that. So you're kind of lucky, but, you know, pay attention to it. Um, yeah. It, you know, it may save your life. So, uh, all right. So you, you're out of rehab. Um, you know, you, you've kind of got this new new goal or um, focus on. You know, you realise you can swim still. Um, what did what unfolded in your life from that moment? Yeah. So it's quite an interesting time because yeah, I, all I want to do is get back in the pool and swim. So that's exactly what I did. Um, it, I couldn't train anywhere near as much as I was training before. No way I was going to be able to do 10 sessions of two and a half hours every day, plus a couple of gym sessions a week. There, yeah, that wasn't going to happen. I was getting fatigued quite quickly. So I was going back, I was going down to just three half an hour sessions. And that's all I could manage within a week. I couldn't obviously train with my old club because nowhere near the ability level I was before. Um, it took me about a minute and a half per length slower now. So yeah, a lot slower a lot more different. So I had to train by myself um, quite a lot of the time. You know, I, I couldn't really, you know, part of my love for swimming was the social aspect of it, having my friends hang out with them, laughing and that during sets and then hanging out afterwards. And yeah, I wasn't able to do that. And also because of where I had my injury, I had it at home where my mum lives and I was living all over the places like Australia and I was, going, I was down at my boarding school. So I didn't have any friends around me. Um, and all my friends were in swimming as well. I didn't really have anybody outside of the swimming world that I was really friends with. And yeah, that was really hard on me. And um, I continued anyway because I was like, I love this sport. I love want to do it. I want to do it. Carry on. But I, ha I did sort of have a word myself in hospital. So I would only ever keep doing the swimming if I really enjoyed it. Um, I was like, life's I almost died that day. Life's too short to just do something just because I'm good at it. I was like, I really need to enjoy it at the same time. Um, I became national champion still, did really well, got on like programs to fast track me towards, you know, getting to, to the, um, uh, the London Olympics. Unfortunately, it was a bit too soon after my injury to go to the London Olympics, but I carried on for a year after that. And, but the lots of the love for the sport died away a bit and I wasn't really into it as much as I was. I just felt I was doing it because I was good at it. Mm. Um, so I, Rehab, I had another word with myself. It's like, like, are you just going to do this because you're good? Like, it's, it's making you unhappy. So um, I decided to, to quit, which was uh, one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make in my life. Mm. And followed that was a year of... Um, it's the worst year I've had in my life following that because ever since I was nine years old, all I wanted to do was be an Olympic swimmer. And this is the first time in my life that I didn't have that goal, didn't have that purpose. And it was then that I was actually not in a good place. Like a lot of people assume because I had a life-changing accident, that's when the depression was set in. But yeah, it was actually three years on once I quit the swimming. And yeah, it was about a year period of just not really doing much of my life. Trying new things. I tried to get into art. Um, but most of my days was just getting up, playing on my PlayStation, seeing my mum a couple of times a week. And then that's pretty much it for about a year. So wasn't a good time in my life. It, it affects your whole identity, right? Um, and I've, I've had this mm. moment uh, once before in my life where everything was riding on the outcome of this goal that I had. You know, mm. my 
my self-worth, um, my my ego, my image, um, you know, what I thought my life was all about, and it, and it all just comes crashing down around you, right? And if you feel empty for, for quite a while, you're like, whoa, what, you know, what am I going to do now, you know? So how did you, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, in some cases, it's just a process you've got to go through. I don't know if there's any answers, but, you know, there must have been a moment where you, where you snapped out of that and you, you found something again. What, could you describe that? Yeah, it was interesting what you said about um, your identity because I was like, I'm Ben Clark, I'm a swimmer. That was just my fit, you know, I was a swimmer. Uh, outside of that, I didn't really know much about myself. You know, I just, I was the guy, I was the guy that swam and I was good at it. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting saying about that um, similar experience for yourself. Do you think, um, that, you know, how, how, would you, how would you suggest that somebody, um, you know, what's a healthy way to, um, to approach that, you know, okay, so you've got this goal and you've, you, you know, you want to be the best in the world at something or, or not even the best in the world at something, but you, you've, you've wrapped around your life, you know, that the two are inextricably linked, you know, what you do mm. and, and yourself. So how do you untangle those or how do you in a, in a healthy way um, proceed? I think it's good to focus on, I, I watched a, a guy talking about it and it really sort it was way after all this had happened. And I was like, I, that makes sense to me quite a lot. And it was like, a lot of people say like, when somebody asks you, what do you do? Or like, who are you? And you say like, you know, um, my name's Bob and I'm an electrician or my name's mm. Fred and I'm a builder. Instead of talking like that way, it should be like, my name is Ben and I'm a good person and trying to think about things that you can actually control because there might be a future where an electrician is a void job and you can't do it anymore. So your whole identity has gone. Whereas mm. if you focus on things you can think about in terms of you can be a good person, you can, uh, I'm a really good father. If for example, that could be something and mm. it'd be something that, yeah, I can, I know that that's true. That's never going to go away. Never, there's never going to be in a time in my life when I'm not going to be that. And it's something that I can work on. I can be better at it. Um, and even if it, you know, it dips down at points, you can still work your way back up to being that again. So it's always, I think it's important to focus on things that, yeah, you, it's within your control. Like as much as we think these, like I thought that swimming was within my control, but it wasn't. And even if I didn't have the accident, there would be a day that I wasn't going to swim anymore. You know, there would have been a, day that I retired and then what I, I would have been further down the line I would have been had even less of a clue of who I was as a person so I'm almost kind of glad I had the accident quite early in life because it did change my perspective such mm. well interesting so you were talking before I asked you that question about how you got out of this you know the worst time in your life what, what uh can you describe that for us yeah so I'm, I feel like I'm quite a self-aware person and I knew that something wasn't right. I knew I wasn't in a good headspace and my mum knew it too. And I was, I was trying new things to try, like I said, I got into art and I did a few other things along the line. Um, I did a little bit of gym, but nothing too serious. And I was like, I need to do something with my life. And my mum was like a bit more forceful with it. She was like, you need to do something with your life. And I was like, okay. I was like, I'm trying to do stuff, but I can't find something that I love. And she was like, well, why don't you just go to the swimming club and see if they need any help? So I went down to my local swimming club, had a chat with the coach there. He was, he was just new that summer as well. 
And I said, do you need any help? Like, this is my career. They already knew about me anyway, my story. And he was like, yeah, we, um, how much do you know about strength and conditioning? And I was like, well, that was one of my favorite bits about swimming was learning all about that side because it was different to the swimming and I really enjoyed it. So I was like, yeah, I could do, I could run these sessions for you if you want. And they're like, okay, here you go. Just do it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. It's just like, so while you're doing that, I could do some paperwork. So it's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got into that and I, I was instantly loved it, but there was a point when, um, it was only two weeks in and the swimmers had come back from a competition and they were like, I've seen the improvements already. And somebody just, and one kid just said, thank you to me. And that was it. Like my love for swimming was straight back exactly what it was before that same feeling I got when I was standing on a podium, I felt for them getting on a podium. And it's something I never, ever thought I would have got from coaching. I was just doing it to try something new. I wasn't expecting to have a love for it. And honestly, before my accident, I thought the coaches were people that had just failed in their swimming career. Like, and they, that, you know, this was just a backup plan. And I never thought that it was a genuine sort of like, you could really make some of yourself in it. Um, wow. And obviously going through that now, it's just like, that was actually the catalyst that took me out of that depression and back into living a life that I wanted to lead. For, for those that are suffering with their mental health and, and even depression, what, what advice would you give them? Like if they're in that, in that moment, what, what's some good advice to prevent that from spiraling further? Um, so one of my favorite quotes in the world is there's no path to happiness. Happiness is the path. And it's focusing on not what you think is going to make you happy, but actually doing what makes you happy. I think it's so, we do so much chasing in our lives. We think, oh, if we do this job that we don't like, it will get us the house or the wife or the car that we want. And that will make me happy. And it's a pitfall that many people fall into because you just assume if you've got lots of money or you're successful, you're happy, but that's not always the case. In fact, quite a lot of people that do get success, they say that money isn't everything because success is quite hollow without the happiness really. And I think it's really important to focus on your happiness. And when I did that, the success came naturally. Like I didn't even have to think about being successful. It was just focusing on being happy again. It's like I was loving the swimming coaching. So I was like, okay, I'll do this. Like it doesn't matter if I don't do, if I don't succeed at all that, I feel like I'm succeeding in a way which makes me happy. And that's what really drove me out of that phase of my life. You know, people can, you know, we, we can come up with an excuse why we can't be happy, you know. So, for example, well, I, I really want to go and do this, but I can't because I don't have enough money or I don't have enough time or I, you know, um, you know, I've got all these responsibilities. You know, what would you say to that? Um, well, there's all, like, it's difficult because I've never really been in a situation where I've had too much responsibility I've never had a kid, I've never been married, I've never had to, you know, I'm lucky enough in the UK that the government pays for my housing and that. So I've never really been in a situation where I've been like, I've got this responsibility. But what I can see from an outside perspective is that if you don't look after yourself and your own happiness, then none of the other thing is going to matter anyway, because you like it's going to seriously have a detriment effect on those things that you think are responsible and they're going to go away. If you can't, you know, that's going to fade away. Like say you've got a job that you need to like, I need to work really hard at it and I'll do really well, but you're going to get burnout. You're not going to be, you're going to hate it. You're going to get even worse from your depression. And you, mm -hmm. 
I think it's important to really prioritize and realize what's important in life. And that's nearly always the little things. And it's like, first of all, you got to think about food, shelter, water. And then after that, it's like things about like relationships and friends and family. And then like jobs and that that can come later. There's always going to be another job. As much as you don't think there might be, there will be. And there's always... You can always have like a fallback system, but yeah, it's obviously difficult for me to, to sort of relate to that because I've not really had to have too much responsibility in my life. So yeah, no, I I, I totally get what you're saying there. We're talking about a hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, essentially. You know, uh, and I think you did right. The, the friendships you have, the relationships, uh, are, are way more important than. Than anything external, jobs or money or possessions, mm. um, and you can find my wife is really really good at looking at the little things. I, I tend to I tend to have this carrot out in front of my head, looking for the big achievements in life, where she gets pleasure out of picking a wild bunch of flowers or um, you know just running into a friend and having a laugh. You know, very very simple pleasures, and if you know she does that daily, then you know happiness will, will flow. So I've got a lot to learn from her there and, uh, and what you're saying, I think is spot on. Yeah, I think it's important to fall in love with the process, whatever that process might be, fall in love with the process of it because the, the end of the journey is a split second, a minute, but your process to go for it is years and years and years. And yeah, there's no point of sacrificing your happiness and then just get to a point and they are, oh, and then it's gone. And it's like, oh, was that worth it? Like, when you get to the end of your life um, and you've got piles of money and a huge house, but you're sat there and you're depressed and you're lonely, like, you're going to look back and you're going to have regrets on, like, oh, I should have spent more time with my families or made more friends or just gone on that trip to Bali and by myself or whatever it might be. (laughs) I'm keen to talk to you about your trip to Bali. but, uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I hear of, uh, you know, these sort of entrepreneurs that, uh, you, you know, are in the media and, and they, you know, they, they make this company, they make a change in the world, then they've completed that. And then you often hear them saying, oh, and then I was just so empty. There was nothing there. It was I was striving for this thing. And they, they do. They say, you know, you've got to enjoy the ride. You know, you've got you to enjoy the, you know, mm part of the adventure is not climbing the mountain. It's actually, uh, or not getting to the top. It's actually the, the whole process, you know, it's, it's the, the journey, right? So. Yeah. And, um, there's something that I'm fascinated about with in terms of psychology, which is called post-success depression. And it's something that a lot of Olympic athletes go through, you know, they train their whole lives every day in and out, and then they get to the end of their thing. They achieve, they do what they've been doing the whole life and they get to the top, do massively well. And then it's like, now what? Mm-hmm. What what comes next? And they, you know, because they've been so focused on the sport, and you have to be to be able to be at the top. You can't have outside focuses. You almost can't have contingency contingency plans. You, if you are, then that means your mind is focused away from what you're doing, mm-hmm. and only the people that focus achieve. So yeah, there's a point where I think it's a massive amount of them have depression as soon as they finished. Like, you know, they come down off the high after the parties at the Olympic Games, and they get, come home and they're like, oh. I don't know what else to do now. Yeah. So, yes, it's always something that fascinates me. And, um, 
yeah, it's interesting to see. So how did your coaching progress? Yeah, so I progressed over the years and I managed to get my coaching qualifications for the swimming as well. Um, and from that, I did a bit more of the strength conditioning work. And also I got to help out on Paul's side, which is a really good experience because their head coach there, he was a new coach and he was really good. Um, he's gone on to coach some of the national teams now as well. So really good like mentoring of him and learning the ropes and all that. Um, as I was doing it, though, I wanted to do something more in the the wheelchair sort of like range. You know, I had this I had this knowledge from swimming, and I was like, I'm so glad to be giving back, and it feels really amazing. But I also have this knowledge of being disabled as well, and I wanted to do something in that sort of field. And I wasn't really sure for quite a while what that would be. I looked into doing para swimming and helping out with that kind of stuff, but there were it's not as easy to get into because there's obviously not as many disabled people as there are able-bodied people. So if you want to train them, you have to travel all over the country. Mm-hmm. And at the time, that wasn't really a possibility for me. So one day I was just looking online for exercise for myself because I was in a happier mood. I was like, okay, I'll start getting to the gym a bit more, start to focus a little bit more on what I'm doing. And I was just typed into YouTube like anybody does, just search for wheelchair exercises. And I only tap- found two videos one was some old people and they were just sat in their chair and they were just swinging their arms. I think only one of them was in a wheelchair even and like the rest were just sat down and they're just swinging their arms a little bit and I was like, well, that's a bit too easy. So I found another one and there's this guy who's basically the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the wheelchair world and absolutely huge guy who had way more function than I had. It could stand up even a little bit and do some exercise. And I was like, well, where's the bit in between? for somebody who wants to get a bit more fit than just swinging your arms and somebody doesn't want to be a bodybuilder. There's a huge gap there and I fall into that as well. So I was like, well, I've got my knowledge of swimming. I do the strength and conditioning work um, and I know about disability because I'm disabled. So why don't I just start it myself? So that's why I started Adapt to Perform. And that was all about just, I thought it'd be a fun thing to do on the side. And yeah, I thought I'd, post a couple of videos, see what happens and see the response. And um, it didn't like blow up or anything, but I got some response back from a few people saying like, I've never seen anything like this. This is a, this is really great. I'd love to see more. And it was just that initial sort of thing. And I was like, okay, I'll do some more then. And I've done some more. And then now three years later, I've made about 130 videos. Um, wow. About 80 of them are workout videos. I was, some of them are a bit like, how to transfer as a quadriplegic, how to get dressed as a quadriplegic, so a little bit more lifestyle things. And, yeah, it's been absolutely fantastic. Again, it hasn't ever blown up. It's been gradually growing over the years, and I kind of like that. I don't really ever want it to blow up as such. I I want it to be my full-time thing, and I want it to be something that I can live off, but I never want it to be this huge viral thing because I I think when things go viral, you have your five minutes of fame, and then you're you're constantly chasing that again. It's like, I kind of want to just gradually grow over the years as such so yeah with that um i absolutely love it i put loads of effort into it i'm working on it every single day um and yeah just if i'm not filming i'm editing and if i'm not editing i'm planning for the next video so yeah it's uh it's good and it gives me another purpose in life so what have you learned through doing this youtube uh channel so on a actual sort of sort of physical level as such um i've learned how to film. I've learned how to edit. I've learned how to upload to YouTube, how to promote stuff. 
be my own PA, PR, everything, just trying to, you know, figure all that because all I knew was swimming. So, um, yeah, it was like a whole new area of expertise for me that I had to go and learn. So uh, I did what I was trying to do with the exercises and I YouTubed it all and learned everything through YouTube, got the right camera, got the right microphone. Um, and yeah, just tried to just learn over the years. And yeah, it's gradually got better and better. Like the video quality's got better. I've learned how to use the editing software a little bit better. I'm nowhere near an expert. Um, it's something that I would like to eventually hire someone to do all that stuff because I love the exercise part of it. You know, the, although mm-hmm. I've learned all this stuff, it's still not my... Uh, I don't have a love for it as such. I have the love for the actual exercising. And that's um, actually funny with the the lives at the moment, because I don't have to do any editing. It's like, this is great. I'm like a kid in the playground at the moment. I'm just doing exercise on camera and talking to people. So. <laughs> oh, that's so good. And, and how receptive was your gym and what, you know, what support did you get from them, if any? Sorry, can you say that again? It went a little bit. Uh, you know, so, what um, what sort of hoops did you have to jump through with your your gym to record your exercises? And you know, did you have to get special permission? What how supportive were they if if they were at all? So, just after I started, I wanted to change gyms anyway because the access to mine wasn't. I mean, I had steps to get in, so I had to have be lifted in and out of the gym. So I was like, I should really go to another gym anyway. Um, so I went to um, my local fitness first. I went to a few others and I didn't like that. I always try and pick a gym that's got a good feel about it. I'd mm. rather have a good feel that has, if it has one step, I'd rather have a gym that I enjoy going to that's got a step than somewhere that's perfectly accessible that's just got grumpy staff. So I went to my fitness, fitness first, which doesn't have an automatic door. So, but the staff there, I just give it a knock and they just come out, they let me in and um, they've been super, super welcoming from day one. Um, they've given me total allowance to film as much as I want. They just said, if, you know, just don't film other people here. That's all that we require. Um, and I've given them feedback over the years on how they can make the gym better and they've taken it on board. They've moved some equipment to make it like nearer to where I can access easier or move stuff out of the way so there's a bigger gap for me to get past. Um, they bought a ski erg as well, which has been great because that's not just great for me, but it's been really good for their personal trainers they use it all the time now as well so they want to get more of those in so yeah they've been really accommodating and it was really important for me to get a good relationship with the manager there and input like put these inputs in and having a manager that also was willing to do as well because i don't think everyone's every gym manager is willing to but to find a gym that did that was really good so tell us about some of the exercises that you recommend the most or what you, you found the most beneficial for yourself? Yeah, so when I'm in the gym, the main thing, so cardio-wise, ski erg is the best thing ever, I think. When we're pushing our wheelchairs, we have a lot of work on our shoulders and our front deltoids and internal rotation, and that just it, like exacerbates our rounded shoulders. You know, typing the computer on our phones all day, pushing our wheelchairs, the shoulders get rounded forwards. But when we're doing the ski erg, it, it does the opposite way. And it's so great to be able to do a cardio exercise that is the opposite of pushing, um, just to mix it up even. Like just to, you, you don't, with a hand cycle even, you're still in front of you and you've still got your shoulders internally rotated. So to be able to do something that's external is absolutely fantastic. So yeah, I couldn't recommend ski erg enough. And the, the machine I use the most outside of that 
in the gym is the cable machine because it's so versatile. And for a wheelchair user, you, you could just have a cable machine and a ski erg and you get every single exercise you could ever need from it. So whether it's bicep curls, tricep extensions, chest press, lat pull downs, anything you could really think of, you can do on it. Um, and yeah, I like to focus on making sure that like for me, I'm at a point where I think I'm strong enough and I don't really need to get any stronger. So I don't focus too much on progressive overload where I'm trying to get stronger and bigger muscles. And I'm at a point where I'm, I'm independent enough that I don't need to be any more than that. So I like to focus on what I call prehab and it's making sure that you're not getting injured as such. So making sure that the little muscles, all the supporting ones, like my, in my rotator cuff muscles, because when we, we come in like this, the rear uh, um, rotator cuff muscles get stretched and they get weak from that. And that's where injuries can come in because your shoulders are out of place. So I like to make sure that I um, get good posture, making sure I'm stretching a lot, making sure I'm getting good mobility in and making sure that my joints are as healthy as possible. So for me, it's more about maintaining what I've got rather than trying to get really strong. So, Hey, I've got a question for you. Uh, I know the importance of, uh, you know, maintaining muscle balance and, and I experience pain from overuse. Uh, how, any tips on, you know, actually doing your exercises and, and, you know, staying, <laughs> staying motivated on that. Um, I, I've got exercise actually just sitting on my wall here that um, a physio prescribed for me and I've got uh, exercise bands and I'm now just currently evaluating um, a ski erg versus a rowing machine. How, you know, what are some tools you can use to um, stick, stick with it? Yeah. So um, one tool that I like to talk about, um, it's not always, it's quite um, a fun tool almost that I used to do when I was swimming. It was just switch your brain off and do it. <laughs> like sometimes when you start thinking about it, you've already lost the battle. Like sometimes you just got to turn that brain off and get in. It's what I used to do when getting up in the morning because say it's a cold winter's morning and I've got to walk to the pool and jump in a freezing cold pool. It's like, if I think about this, there's no way this is going to happen. So I have to just like, right, just do it. And then I just start moving, get to it and just do it. And just, and then that. Is it about finding a routine? Is it, is it a routine thing or like set, setting a specific time, you know, you know, so that you're, it becomes part of your daily daily habits. And and on that, when when is a good time to exercise? Morning, evening, during the day? Is there any particular time that's better than others? Um, I always say that a little is better than nothing and do what you can because it sometimes you can for, almost force yourself into a routine that you hate just because you think it's the right one to do. So saying that like there's a specific time of day to do it, that means like, oh, if I can't do it today, that means I'll never do it the rest of the day. It's quite important to be flexible and just making sure you're consistent over time. If that means you have to have a day off, but it means that you'll be okay for the next couple of days, that's fine. Just as long as you're consistent over time. Consistency is one of the biggest factors to improving where you are over time. And to help with that, I like to do some goal planning. So in terms of like a big picture thing, I like to actually write that down and do a thing called SMART goals. I won't go into it too much because I could talk for about an hour and a half about SMART goals if I wanted to. Um, but if you Google SMART goals, uh, it'll tell you how to write down goals that are, well, it, the thing is specific, measurable, achievable, uh, realistic, and time-based. And it just gives you um, the resources that you need to be able to actually 
achieve your goals. And you can write those down. You can put them up on the wall in big letters. You can put it on your fridge. On a, I've got a magnetic whiteboard on my fridge, and I put up my goals and make sure that I know what I'm achieving. It's not just I want to do this, and then you put it up there because that's never going to work. You need to have it following smart goals. It means that you are you've got a specific goal that is achievable, and you actually write down the steps of how you're going to achieve that as well. It's not just I have a dream. It's more like I have a plan, and this is the plan, and this is what I got to do each day to achieve what I want to achieve. Um, for the search, what I do for like big things, for example, there's a big event that I'm meant to be doing in September, which is um, a big swim that I want to be doing. Um, so I've written down the plan for that. When it's more small things, like I just want to improve this this shoulder's, you know, not as good posture as I like it to be at the moment. It's kind of, you know, because I've been sitting indoors a bit more. So I just know that I'd make sure that I'm focused on that. So I just write down a little thing saying every morning that I'm doing these exercises to make sure I'm getting in the the right F, the work in so i don't i know i don't need to put down a big you know i don't need to write down a huge schedule and that i just need to make sure that each and every day that i'm doing that and i like to link it to other things so if in the morning i'm doing my morning routine and i'm getting dressed there's a stretch that's really good for when i'm lying on the bed so i just put and i get tired sometimes putting my clothes on so i just put a part of the clothes on do the stretch to relax and then just get back to the dressing again. And it just fits it into my daily routine and just doing things like that just makes it easier. And once you get into a routine, I, I can't remember the exact days, but they say once you've done it after certain days, you almost forget about that you're doing it. It's just natural. Like cleaning your teeth every day it just comes naturally. You don't even mm. have to think about it. Mm. I think I, I think it's like 28 days or something like that. So Interesting. When I'm sitting on the toilet in the morning, one of the things I do is I, 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 it's kind of the toilet's in a bit of a corner and I, I stretch my... Um, mm. my picks that way, and mm. and it's kind of like yeah. I'm sort of um, I've kind of got to wait for nature to take its course, so I might as well do something while I'm waiting. And and one of those things is stretching, which um, which actually is like you say, it's like brushing your teeth. I do it sort of almost instinctively now. So it's um, yeah. finding finding ways you can integrate things like that with your everyday. You know, maybe it's you know you take a you take a tea break, and while the jug is boiling you're doing some TheraBand exercises or something, you know, like just, just filling in those time gaps. I think it's, it's smart. Never realized that I actually did that, but, um, but there's a, there's a few moments here where I do. Yeah, it is. I'd like to talk about a couple more things before we wrap up, uh, what you'd recommend for cardio for, um, somebody that, you know, has arm function that allows them to, you know, I guess, pull, pull things so a ski erg machine versus a, a rowing machine was the two two that i i guess i'm personally evaluating at the moment and if uh, you know are there other options that um, that i could look at yeah so with the rowing machine i'll try and give a bit of demonstration here so your range of motion is from straight arm out here to here so this is your range of motion with this uh rowing machine if you've got core function you can get a bit more in because you can get that stretch mm. and that pull back which does sort of help with the the back muscles as well. So that's something that you can factor in with that. With the ski erg, the thing I like is that you're going, oh, I've gone blurry on the, uh, <laughs> should come back in a second, but you're going right from full extension all the way through to full extension again. So it's going for a full range of motion, uh, which is, yeah, something that's really good, I find personally, uh, just because the cables are separate. So you can go past your body, mm. which is something that's quite um, and quite versatile. Um, and it does, the row machine only needs um, some 
There we go. Right. Um, the rowing machine needs almost like a seat that you can sit in and there's adaptive, whereas a ski egg you can use straight out of the gate. You can bolt it to your wall and you can go straight away. So, mm. yeah, this, it's, it's, I think it's a bit more versatile. The In terms of the actual exercise itself, I don't think there's much difference in terms of an able-body using a rowing machine and a ski egg. There's, I think the ski egg uses the arms a little bit more and the rowing machine uses the legs a little bit more, but it, I think it balances itself out and you get a pretty good workout anyway. Nice. Oh, that's that's good to know. Is there any particular brands out there that you that are, that are better than others, or are there you know is there much to choose from? I think it's just Concept Two that do the ski erg. Um, yeah, I've, I don't, I've never seen anybody else. But if you wanted to set up your own one at home and you don't have a spare eight hundred pounds, just get some light resistance bands. They're extremely stretchy, so ones that do go through quite a range of motion. Just put those up high and just use those. Just make sure you attach to something that's not going to fling off the wall and hit you in the face. <laughs> hey, that's cool. I'll um, I'll definitely look into that as an interim until I um, until I find the uh, the funds. Uh, tell us about travel. You've travelled you've travelled a wee bit as a as a quadriplegic, um, and and I'd also like to know a bit about uh, a bit about dating. But maybe we'll start with travel. Um, have you got any tips for our yeah, for sure. our listeners about travelling uh, as a wheelchair user and in particular a, a quadriplegic? Yeah, so originally when I first had my injury, I didn't think I'd be able to travel because I was so reliant on carers coming in all the time. Uh, and the only holiday I got to go on was, I mean, I say got it was a month trip to Australia, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> uh, but it was with my mum, so it wasn't quite the same as, you know, I was about 23 years old at the time and going with your ho- um, holiday with your mum isn't something you want to be doing for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I sort of thought that holidays and that, and I absolutely love to travel as well. I did so much with swimming as a kid. Never really got to see much because I was just seeing swimming pools and hotel rooms. So something that I really wanted to carry on doing, and it wasn't actually until I met Alice and she helped me. She helps me a lot when we travel. So really without her, I don't think the travel will be as possible. But since then, I think I can actually travel by myself. So I'll go into that a little bit more about why that is. And we travel... A lot. Like we um, last year, we went away from the house one uh, every month. So every month we were somewhere different. So we travelled twelve times last year. Uh, whether that's somewhere in the UK just for a weekend, or whether that's going on a longer trip, which is what we did when we went to Bali. So yeah, Bali was an absolutely incredible experience, and I got invited out there with a charity. So the charity that helped me through my personal training qualifications. They paid for me to go out there and work with another charity called Bali Sports Foundation. So in Bali, if you're disabled, you're sort of considered a curse on your family, sort of locked away. And, you know, they believe in karma. So you think, oh, you must have done something bad in your previous life if you're now disabled in this life. Mm. So, yeah, they're sort of locked away. And there's a charity out there run by an Australian guy who basically tries to find these um, disabled people and get them out the house and playing sports so yeah the absolutely fascinating thing they're doing and amazing difference they're making to people's lives because they're getting out they're going to para sports some of them are representing their country in paralympics and yeah i got invited out to do one of their summer schools so it's a new thing that they set up with in conjunction with a university here in the uk uh regain the charity i work with them bali sports foundation all linking together to do this summer sports school 
So I went out there and did my goal planning. That's why I say I can talk about smart goals for hours on end, Hornsey, because I'm there for teaching purposes as well. So yeah, took tour there, managed to do some sports with them out there as well, did some wheelchair rugby tournaments and some various bits and pieces and just yeah, help those people through it. And we were saying earlier about like people saying that they don't have, you know, they've got all these commitments and all these things. And it's when you strip things back and you realize what's important in life. And when I was in Bali, these people literally had like they had no education. They had, you know, their family had rejected them. They, you know, everything was against them in life. They were disabled, but they were so happy and they were so content in their life. And it didn't matter that they didn't have all these nice things. It didn't matter all that because they appreciated what they did have. And obviously thanks to the charity, some of them had, you know, made careers for themselves. And it was incredible that that was their outlook on life. And it really helped um, I was already sort of in the stage where I was feeling that way, but it's helped like solidify my feelings and experiences that it was what I was thinking was important. Like the small things in life were important. It wasn't all about, you know, making sure that, you know, I'm just trying to succeed. It was making sure that I was happy. So yeah, that was an, a very eye-opening experience. And yeah, when you were saying about what should people do if they feel like they're um, st- like stuck in their system, travel. Go and see how people live in a, a country that's way less off than we are. And you'll soon realize that um, happiness can be achieved at any sort of monetary level. Mm-hmm. Well, wow, it's incredible insight. Um, yeah, I've certainly found that through my my traveling prior to this, just realizing how how lucky lucky we have it. And, and, and in fact, how lucky everyone you can look at, uh, how lucky they have it, no matter where you are, right? I think that's that's the interesting thing. No matter if you're living in a slum in in India, you can still appreciate um, something in your life. Um, but you know, us as is yeah. uh, you know white Western people more so than anyone in the world. I think. Um, so yeah, definitely. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, tell us about um, tell us about Alice and, and tell us about dating. Yeah. So. When I had my accident, I was sort of with a girl and that didn't really last long past being in hospital. Obviously, it's a massive strain on anybody to go through that, especially if you've only just started dating and that. It's not really... So that wasn't ever really going to go anywhere because of that. Um, And then sort of when I came out, I wasn't really interested in girls as such. I was sort of interested in just swimming again. So just sort of carried on with doing that. Um, Dated a few people over the years, but nothing really serious. Um, I don't know if there was ever a time when I thought that my disability was going to affect it or not, but I I remember because when I started dating again, it's when like Tinder and Plenty of Fish sort of started to be a a real thing rather than just sort of this weird thing where creepy people hang out. Um, It was like a real mainstream thing coming into it. So I I remember initially trying to like just trying to think about like do I tell people I'm in a wheelchair to begin with or do I leave it until they get to know me a bit better. Um, and I thought it's just best if I, I was like, what would I think in their situation? I was like, I, I just want to be open and honest. And I think that's the best thing that I did in terms of the dating side of it was just be open and honest to be exactly who I am because it's part of me. I'm not going to be able to change that. And it's actually quite a relief. I call it, um, if you mind my language, you might have to bleep this out, but the bullshit filter um, because it filters out basically all the people that, you know, I always think that if I wasn't disabled, would I want to date somebody who sees that as a problem? Um, 
And the fact that I've got it means that I've actually already filled out all those people that wouldn't want to do that. Um, And yeah, it really helps. Yeah. My, um, it really helps sort of regain my confidence when I was more open about it because the people that I was meeting and dating at the time, they were the sort of people that I actually wanted to be with, not just because they were okay with a disability, but they were just genuinely nice, kind people. Mm. And yeah, it actually helps in the early days of dating and that. And then in terms of Alice, I actually sort of gave up on online dating. I wasn't really in a place where I wanted to do it. I started my coaching. I just started Adapt to Perform as well, and I wasn't really focused on it. But my profile was on sites anyway. Um, and one of my very good friends, Emily, um, she messaged me saying that my friend saw you on Tinder and liked the look of you, <laughs> thought you were interesting. And was like, and she knew that my friend Emily had a friend in a wheelchair. I was like, oh, is that, you know, is that him? I was like, yeah, that's him. And she was like, I'd like to meet him. I'd like to get to know him more. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, although it was through online dating, it was actually for a mutual friend that we, we met each other. So, yeah, we, we went on a, uh, on a date to begin with, but Emily came along and one of Alice's other friends came along. And we had a, a nice night out of the pub. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um, I, I wasn't really expecting much from it. I was just like, oh, this is cool. Get to hang out with more people. I was so focused on what I was doing at the time. I didn't really have time to hang out with friends as such. Um, but it was just like a nice difference to do, like, to do that. And as I said, I didn't have many friends in the area after my injury. So to have some friends was really awesome. And just sort of, we hang out a few more times. The second day, actually, we were meant to meet up with Emily again. And then Emily purposely, accidentally cancelled on us at the last minute. Said she couldn't come, so Alice and I would be alone. And uh, we sat up in, until about three in the morning just talking. Apparently, I did most of the talking, so I must have been a bit nervous. <laughs> but yeah, I did. Um, and then, yeah, um, I asked her out one day and it was, yes, yeah, it's, it's been pretty much amazing ever since. And, um, yeah, I, it, it's been something that, so I'll tell you what's, what's crazy about it because Alice has her own business, which she is a senior companion for elderly people. Uh, and that means she goes into different buildings and like just sort of hangs out with them, takes them out for coffee, shopping, all this kind of thing. Just like the fun side of like her, for her, she says it says she has lots of grandparents and they get, you know, they might be lonely and they just have that bit of company. Yeah. So that's the business. She's got people working for her. But she actually had a client in the block of flats that I live in. And she had been had that client for three years and we had never met in the corridors or anything. And she'd be coming in three times a week, every single wow. week. And I never met her. And yeah. And then we met through this other way. And then we realized she realized when she found out where I lived that it was the same building. She was like, oh, I didn't know you lived there sort of thing. I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. And then it was like this crazy thing because when she started coming to that client, I was in that depressed stage. I wasn't ready to meet anybody. I wasn't the happy person that I was when we actually met. And she was saying she had gone through a bad breakup. She wasn't in the right place. And I felt once I started to be happy because of what I was doing with the coaching and adaptive reform, that's it was almost like we were meant to meet each other at that point in our lives because we think if we met each other before, then it wouldn't have worked because we wouldn't have been in the right place. So I really believe that my path to being happy is what snowballed into meeting Alice. And yeah, it was it was only because I was willing to put myself out there because I was happy that that came mm-hmm. around. And 
it, me and her has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my life. And I think I owe that all down to being happy, basically. So, yeah, it's been pretty cool. And as I said, we, we travel a lot. We do a lot together. We, we're never, ever bored of each other. We can spend all... I mean, we're quarantining together and we don't, it, we don't argue. We're just excited to see each other every single day. So, yeah, it's... It's pretty fun. Sounds sounds just exactly like love, mate. I'm I'm super stoked for you. That's that's awesome. Um, you know, just on the mechanics of it, how how did you broach the subject of uh, sex and intimacy? Um, I think it with me being really laid back and Alice being uh, quite inquisitive and being open as well. It just worked quite naturally in terms of talking about it. So, um, just coming up with it, it was just it was just really normal to be honest and I think that's quite important to know about the whole relationship like if you've been listening to this story like I've said if you take the wheelchair out of it there's no different to anybody else like it, it doesn't make any difference like it's just a normal love story sort of thing as such and um yeah it's it's never ever been an issue for her me being disabled she says it what makes me interesting <laughs> And she thinks it's, uh, yeah, she, she says I can't run away from her. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just been one of those. It's funny. <laughs> she says if she ever wants to get away with me, she just finds a set of stairs and goes up there. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant, mate. So, yeah, so it's never, like, approaching that sort of topic, um, it's never really been an issue. Um, it was the same with everything. We have such a good open dialogue and it's always saying that the key to a good relationship is communication and it it's, so true no matter where you are in it and that's a two-way conversation not just a one-way conversation as well so you've got to be open and honest with your feelings um and if you feel like you can't then you've got to find a way that you can because if you can't open up and be mm. who you are as a person or you can't be honest then it's it's never going to work in the long term mm. yeah that's really interesting now you're a wise man um i've really enjoyed <laughs> chatting with you uh today Tell us uh, what does the future hold for you, and where can people um, find find out more about you and and um, and uh, connect with you? Yeah, so I'll start with where people can find me. That's Adapt to Perform, which is here. Got the brand branding up. Um, so yeah, that's that's out on YouTube, which is where all the exercise videos are, and a bit more about like transferring and stuff like that. If you're a podge, please you can search. Um, if you go to my Instagram, it's a little bit different. It's more about mental health stuff and just a little bit of fun and my sort of day-to-day life kind of thing as well. Um, and I do put some fitness stuff up. At the moment, I am doing a live stream every single day. And I had Mike here on it as well the other day. And we had a good chat. So that's similar to this sort of thing, just getting to this one. And I do that every single day um, at the moment during quarantine period because... Something for me to do, basically. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's really fun to do. And I do live streams for fitness as well uh, uh, an hour before that goes live. So yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment and where you can find me, just adapt to perform everywhere. Um, and then what the future holds to me, basically I want to keep growing it and see where I can take it. Um, and my ideal situation is that I'd love to have a, a location here, either in the UK or somewhere in Europe, that people can come to if they've had a spinal cord injury post-hospital and it's a gym uh, where I help them become more independent, have an Airbnb attached to it and I can help them cook and I teach them all new skills that they will want to learn in their life. 
as well as a gym attached to it where we can do some personal training stuff and just help people through their journey in life post-hospital. That's like the long, long-term goal. And I have many goals in between that, including some personal goals in terms of some crazy adventures that I want to do. Like um, I haven't really properly announced it, but it is out there in the world. I just haven't announced it myself, but I'm going to be doing the world's first quadriplegic 10K swim, open water in September, hopefully. Cool. So yeah, that's um, something that, I, unfortunately, training's on hold for that because I can't go swimming, but doing what I can at home. Um, and also I'd love to be able to compete in an Ironman one day and yeah, just to be able to do it and say I've done it and then I can call myself Ironman. <laughs> oh, mate, I, 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 10 kilometers of swimming is a huge amount of swimming. Like that's, that's, that's a long, long way. That's a, that's a really, really, yeah, ambitious. it's probably going to take me about five hours. <laughs> I've got a question here from just five hours. Really just have a question here from Yuri asking, would that be funded privately? I, I assume, Yuri, what you mean is, with the you know your your private um, you know post rehab um, facility be funded privately, um. so I think it um, is something that I want to achieve as a business myself. It's something that I want to be able to run, um, but I want to make it also affordable for people as well. I know that rehab facilities and all that is super super expensive, um, but yeah. Um, I don't know where it will lead me. That's just something that I would love to be able to do. But like, I don't know where this journey is eventually actually going to take me. Like, It could take me in a completely different direction. That I don't know. But I know that I'm going to tr- try and follow the happiness side of it and see where that takes me. But that's something that, at the moment, that feels like somewhere I'm trying to get to, to a point. Um, but yeah, I'd love to have it. So it's, it's very cheap, very affordable, and it's very beneficial to a lot of people out there. Absolutely awesome. I think it's a fantastic goal. And Ben, I thank you for sharing your insights. And I the key takeaway for me is to follow the happiness journey, follow the happiness path. Um, I love it. I've been writing down a few a few of your um, uh, tips and tricks. And what I'll do is I will uh, upload this to our website and uh, link uh, to, to Ben's uh, sites so you can follow along and um, and uh, keep keep this conversation going and learn learn some more from Ben. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope we get to meet in person one day, uh, either this side of the world or um, or if I'm in your uh, side of the world. Um, and yeah, wish yeah. you well for the rest of the, the lockdown, and, um, yeah, um, all the very best. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mike, for having me on, and thank you, everybody, that's been watching. It's been a pleasure. I, I like... I actually do quite like talking about myself sometimes because I'm often talking to other people. So it's nice to be on the other end. <laughs> so yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's been great, mate. Awesome. All right. Well, um, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Um, we'll do it again sometime soon. Definitely. All right. Bye. See ya. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.